Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 46, Witchred. According to Bede, the rise of Witchred to the kingship of Kent in 690 marked the return of a rightful king to the Kentish throne and the end of foreign occupation. As discussed last time, this occupation may have been in the form of South Saxon subjugation. The situation was not immediately resolved upon Witchred's rise, however. In 690, Kent was still divided between a Kentish king in the east and a South Saxon king in the west, and seemingly remained so for the first few years of Witchred's reign. However, at some point, between 692 and 694, the South Saxons left Kent, and Witchred assumed direct control of the entire kingdom. See the end of the previous episode for more on that. Upon his becoming sole king, Witred appears to have undertaken an energetic foreign policy aimed at securing the stability of Kent. He seems especially to have sought closer relations with Wessex, now under the rule of King Ina. According to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, he did this in 694 when he reached an agreement with Ina to pay a guild of 30,000 shillings for the killing of Mull who, if you'll recall, was the brother of Cadwalla that that adventurous king had set up as a puppet of Kent, and who was subsequently burned to death in a Kentish revolt. With the payment of this guild, the two kingdoms entered into a state of peace, with the two kings focusing on their respective kingdoms. Other than this dramatic reversal in foreign policy, Whitred's reign is fairly uneventful, It was a remarkably long one, he reigned from 690 to 725, and as is usually the case in early Anglo-Saxon history, the very long reigns tend not to be remembered as especially eventful. We don't know, for example, of Witchred's launching any wars or being attacked at all during this time. If we look at the other major threat to Kent, at least judging by their past interactions, Mercia, then we see that the Kingdom of the Midlands was in some disarray for much of Witchred's reign. Ethelred, who had commenced his reign by invading Kent, had by 690 become much more concerned with the north of his kingdom due to the abortive Northumbrian invasion which occurred in 679. While he was distracted, Wessex had expanded its dominance in the south, which made attacking Kent a risky move for the embattled Mercians. After Ethelred's abdication in 704, the two following kings, Coenred and Caelred, were seemingly a non-entity and a paranoid hedonist, respectively, sending Mercia into internal discord for much of Witred's reign. Therefore, Kent was largely secure once it had established peace with Ina, hence Witred's long and somewhat uneventful reign. To scholars, 
Witchred is most well known for the law code that he promulgated. The circumstances of its creation are related in the code's prologue. Here we're told that the king met in council with the most prominent men of his kingdom in the fifth year of his reign, so probably 695. Even more specifically though, we are told that it occurred in the ninth indiction on the sixth day of Rugern. Let us expand on this a little bit more since it leads us into a discussion of some interesting history about early ways of reckoning time in early Anglo-Saxon England. The indiction was a means of dating brought over from the Roman Empire. It's originally referred to a 15-year cycle, at the end of which the agricultural taxes due to the empire would be reassessed. It had begun to be used on official documents as a means of dating by the Emperor Constantine in 312. By the middle of the 4th century, it had been expanded to be used as a means of dating documents unrelated to taxes. Up until the mid-5th century, the indiction year began on the 23rd of September, the birthday of Augustus. But in the late 5th century, the Eastern Roman emperors decreed that the start of the year had to be moved to the 1st of September. In the Eastern Empire, the 1st of September was traditionally celebrated as the start of the new year. In the West, the indiction remained the 23rd of September, according to Bede, but gradually, under papal influence, it shifted to the 1st of January. The indictions themselves were not numbered, but they were used to identify a particular year within an indiction cycle. So in the case of Whitred's Laws, the ninth indiction means the ninth year of the current 15-year indiction cycle. Since the cycle was not numbered, we need other information to date the code, and other such documents, more precisely. We have that in the form of Witchred's regnal year, which we know dates the text to 695. More precisely, we're told that the meeting occurred on the sixth day of Rugern. This word means rye harvest, and this is the only place where it occurs in the Old English corpus, so it must indicate a particular time of year. Patrick Wormold, the great Anglo-Saxonist, suggested that the word was a reference to September, but this seems questionable since rye typically is harvested in late July or early August, so it seems to me that the reference to Rugern here indicates that the council to promulgate Witchred's law code occurred on the 6th of August 695, towards the end of the ninth indiction. Hi listeners, I wanted to take a second to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved and it's all ready to go in two minutes with minimal meal prep. I've had some fantastic meals like butter chicken and tomato risotto with Factor, And I've got to say, I've been extremely impressed with all of them. They genuinely are restaurant quality. You'll get over 35 different options to choose from every week if you try out Factor, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, with pancakes, smoothies, and more, there's over 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and ready to go throughout the day. Factor also works around your schedule. You can order as little or as much as you need each week, and they even let you reschedule deliveries any time of when those unexpected somethings happen to pop up. And to top it all off, Factor is cheaper than ordering takeout, so it really is a smart move to try it out. Get started today and get after your goals. 
If you're interested in trying Factor, head to factormeals.com slash anglo50 and use code anglo50 to get 50% off. That's code anglo50 at factormeals.com slash anglo50 to get 50% off. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider that you're using to listen to this, when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, or when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts by pledging to one of the show's patron tiers. And speaking of patrons, I wanted to give a shout-out to Peter Kelly and Gabe Close. Thank you so much for your support and I hope that you're enjoying the extra material that you now have access to. Anyway, back to the show. The content of Witchred's Law Code demonstrates the degree to which the monarchy in Kent had developed since the days of Athelbert. A palpable sense of the majesty attached to the king pervades through the document, although the text itself is mostly concerned with laws regarding the church. The text opens with a decree that the church is to be free from taxation, but with the caveat that the king is to be prayed for, and that this is done from the free will of the clergy. Exactly how free this was, since it almost reads like Witchred is dangling tax exemption over their heads, can be somewhat debated. Next, the code decrees that the payment for breaching the church's protection is 50 shillings, which is equal to the amount to be paid to the king on the event of breaching his protection. Right at the outset, then, Witchred has established that the church and the king are of equal worth, and both are to be respected. After this opening, the code moves on to enforcing ecclesiastical law, particularly ensuring that the church in Kent is properly deferred to and that its clergy perform their proper duties. It seems that there was continued anxiety in Kent around unorthodox religious practices, which may be a reference to pagan practices or it may just be a reference to a lack of pastoral care. For example, the early decrees are very concerned about irregular marriages, particularly among foreigners living in Kent, but also among the people of Kent themselves. At this time, marriage was not yet a sacrament, so Witchred was not referring here to a full sacramental wedding. Instead, he seems to be referring to the blessing of unions by a priest. Those who had and continued in illicit cohabitation, as the code describes it, would be excluded from the church until they had corrected the situation. 
I speculate that this was a reference to pagan weddings, but this is not explicitly stated in the text. It's possible that the code is referring simply to unions that are not blessed by the clergy, indicating that the root issue is not paganism, but instead failings in pastoral care. That this is what is intended can be inferred from decrees 6 and 7 of the laws, the first of which decrees the punishment for a priest who allows an illicit union, fails to baptise the sick, or who is so drunk that he's unable to perform his duties. The seventh decree places a limit on how much hospitality can be given to an itinerant priest, one with no ecclesiastical superior. This seems to be a way of making sure that they don't become too comfortable, probably as a means of subtly encouraging them to go and become connected to a particular church. The implication of these decrees seems to be that Whitred and the elite of the church were seeking to formalise ecclesiastical structures in Kent and regularise the administration of pastoral care to the people. Next, we find two clauses explicitly outlawing pagan worship. This is the first instance of this in Kentish law. Even Athelbert didn't explicitly outlaw paganism. It is on the basis of this law that I suggested the illicit unions already mentioned may have been in some way pagan. Whether these are signs of continued paganism or indicate formulaic prohibitions, since no such prohibitions had as of yet been made in Kent, is unknown. Whatever the case, as of Whitred, paganism was legally forbidden in Kent. After this, the code moves into a section detailing what was required to swear an oath of innocence. I touched a bit on this in the episode on Hlothera and Eadrich. The oath was at the core of the Anglo-Saxon legal system, and in the Code of Whitred, we are told clearly how an oath was to be sworn for all the different levels of society. So, for example, we are told that the word of the king and the word of a bishop are legally incontrovertible without the need to swear an oath. In other words, their word was law. Here again, we see the dual majesty of the church and king under Whitred. Everyone else in society had to swear the oath of innocence with great solemnity before an altar, with the one swearing the oath placing his hand on said altar. Only the oath sworn by a priest or deacon is actually given, but it offers some sense of what the oaths of other classes may have looked like. While dressed in full liturgical vestments, the priest or the deacon was to stand before the altar, place their hand upon it, and say, I speak the truth in Christ, I do not lie. A priest, deacon, stranger, or a king's thane could all swear an oath by themselves. Lesser clerics and freemen had to have two witnesses present at the altar with them to swear the oath. In the case of servants and slaves, the master was to swear an oath on their behalf. If they happened to be the servant or slave of a bishop or king, since neither of these two were permitted to swear an oath, the oath was to be sworn by the king's reeve, that is, the king's representative. After this section on oath swearing, the code touches on the treatment of thieves. In short, a thief killed in the act of robbery forfeits his guild. If a freeman is caught with stolen goods, the king could choose whether to have him killed, sold overseas into slavery, or redeemed by Wehrgild. The final clause of Witchred's Code is particularly interesting, not so much for its content, 
It concerns how a man who wanders off a track without announcing himself is to be assumed to be a thief, but rather for the fact that its wording is almost identical to that of a provision found in the laws issued by King Ina of Wessex in 694. The suspicion is that Whitred and Ina collaborated in some way in producing their law codes, and this is further suggested by the use in Whitred's code of West Saxon terminology. For example, when discussing illicit unions, the writer uses the word yesith, companion, originally referring to a member of the king's retinue, but in Whitred's laws, it is presented as a position into which one could be born, indicating the emergence of a yesith class in Kent. In earlier law codes, people of a similar social position were called eolkund, and here we see the gradual spread of West Saxon language and ideas into the rest of southern England. All of this means that the laws of Whitred then, like other law codes, offer us invaluable insight into the politics and society of their time. Even in the less than 100 years which separated Athelbert's law code from Whitred's, we see how the quite tentative, newly Christianised kingship of the former has moulded into an assertive one, freely equating itself with the church and its mission in Kent. Consider also how social developments are visible between the two. In Athelbert's code, the focus was on preventing blood feud and making some small claims to defend the young church. By 694, blood feud is entirely gone from the laws and has been replaced by Weregild, the threat of violent extrajudicial revenge seemingly now not being a major issue in Kentish society. The church too is now in its full adulthood, with a multifaceted hierarchy and enough cultural capital among the people to make the swearing of religious oaths an acceptable and authoritative means of testing one's truthfulness. This would only work in a society where Christian morality had become firmly entrenched. The laws may indicate some lingering paganism, but it has clearly lost all political power, being relegated to an act performed in secret within one's home and away from prying eyes. We see then, in Whitred's laws, the transformation of Kent from a pagan tribal confederacy, essentially, into a Christian medieval kingdom. The freedom of this kingdom would not long outlive Whitred, though. Following his death in 725, his three sons divided the kingdom between them. With the abdication of King Ina in 726, this left the south of England open to the exploitation of the Mercian king. Since returning from exile, Athelbald had been building support within Mercia, and the time was now right to assert his dominance south of the Thames. So would begin Kent's time as a subject kingdom under Mercian hegemony. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I have been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join me again next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.